You want me to eat what? I can imagine this was the reaction of some of the people. As Jesus said to them, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You want me to eat what? Have you ever had one of those days or those types of days with Jesus where what he says is hard to understand and you are offended by what he directs towards you? I had one of those days yesterday. Not about this text, but some other stuff. Where it's hard to understand and you're offended. That's the kind of day we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. It's a large patch of scripture. We won't be able to dive into it very deeply. We're going to move pretty quickly through it. But it's all part of this series of messages in the book of John where we're invited to have this deeply respectful relationship with Jesus, but at the same time be cultivating a best friend kind of relationship. And this is modeled for us by John, Jesus' best friend, his nearest and dearest. Earlier in chapter 6, if you were to read that, you would see that Jesus is teaching and a large crowd of people gather conservatively 10 to 15,000 people, and they're hungry, and he miraculously feeds them by taking a small lunch of a boy, and he multiplies it so that everyone has more than enough to eat. Then in the middle section after that, in chapter 6, Jesus leaves, and he goes up to, towards Capernaum, which is north of where he had been teaching in Tiberias, on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples take a boat up there and he walks on water to join them there in Capernaum as he's teaching. And this massive crowd is so impressed with what he's done that they begin to follow him. Because after all, he's giving them free bread and there's miracles. And Jesus at this point is very popular. And so what I want to do is look at the three sections from 25 through 71, and we're going to be looking through this passage together. So beginning in verse 25 of John chapter 6, it says this, when the crowd found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, that it's not Moses who is giving you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we want to talk about some things about people, we want to talk about the Word of God, and we want to talk about Jesus. And I just want to draw a few things. We, we can't go into a lot of depth in this passage because there's so much here. But just some of the things that we quickly draw out of this is that most people care more about their physical body and their outer self than their soul and their eternal life. And Jesus quickly identifies this. He says, you're more into the temporal, you're more into the external than you are into the inner part of a person and the eternal part of the person, the things that really matter. You're into free bread. You want to be able to go into Cobbs and raid the shelves and have any of the bread and as much of the bread in there as you want for free. And Jesus says, listen, people, I want to talk to you about what really matters about your soul. And they're not so interested when he begins to open up that conversation. And this is so true of our world today. Many people pay way more attention to their outer life and give very little consideration, and in fact, go out of their way to give little, little consideration to their inner life. And God wants us to care for both. And so part of that inner world is not only having a relationship with him, but cultivating it. A relationship that, that sees us in his word, a relationship that sees us praying, and so much more than that, actually living it out and taking other people on the journey to be disciples like we are growing into. All of this done in God's strength, all of this done in God's empowerment. Our inner life fueling our outer life. But most care more about outward than the inward. And Jesus identifies this right away. Secondly, most people are bandwagon fans. Like I said, 10 to 15,000 people conservatively are following him at this point as he's teaching up in Capernaum. And by the end of this passage, towards the end of the verses, at the end of chapter 6, most of them, the vast bulk of them, walk away because they are bandwagon fans. And as long as Christianity is popular, they are all in. As long as Jesus is in the headlines, they want to be on his team. But as soon as it gets tough, as soon as it gets personal, as soon as it gets transformative in their life, they are gone. I can be a bandwagon fan. 
You know, I never, I basically never watched basketball, but I've been to one NBA game in my life. It was a lot of fun, but I basically never watched it. But last year when the Raptors were in their championship run, I began to watch them during the playoffs, and I became an avid bandwagon fan. This year, I have not watched five minutes of basketball. I've heard they're doing pretty well, but I haven't watched five minutes. And so I'm a decidedly bandwagon fan. But when it comes to the Rough Riders... I'm all in. Before I was five years old, I was all in. When I was five years old, I was going to all the Rough Rider games with my friends. We would sit in the Rider rookies together and run around in their rookie section. And there's been, and I've, been, and I've stood with them all these 50 plus years through thick and thin, and most of it's been thin. But I have been a devout fan, and I will go out of my way to watch the games. Thirdly, Jesus basically says, most people won't believe in me, even though I'm there right in front of them. And I would suggest to you, even if he showed up today, the vast bulk of people in person, the vast bulk of people would still not believe him. He says this to them in verse 30. He says, they, they say to him this very curious question to me. It says, they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you then give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? He's been doing this all along already. We've do, seen this in this series. In John chapter 2, he turns water into wine in his first public miracle. We saw in chapter 5 and in chapter 9 that he's healing people. He heals a blind man. He heals a person that's been lame for 38 years. We see in this passage that he feeds and he's fed miraculously, like I said, at least ten to 15,000 people. He walks on water. He's been doing miracle after miracle over and over again all through this process. He's been saying, I am God. I'm the Holy One of God. I am God. And sometimes you'll come across people and they'll try, they'll try to suggest to you that Jesus never said that he was God. They've never really read the scriptures if they say that to you. He says it over and over and over again. And he says it again here in chapter 6. And there's abundant evidence and he's standing right there in front of them and still they do not believe. And in our part of the world, this is very similar. The message and evidence for Christ is everywhere. Everywhere for anyone that wants to look. Yet for some, even in this room, Jesus has answered all your questions. And he has shown up in your life. And you are surrounded. God has arranged for it people to be in your life that love Jesus and love you. And are pointing you to him. And you have not chosen him. It's time to decide. He says this in verse 36 to them. He says, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Over and over again, Jesus calls for people to make a decision. There's no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence. You either believe in him and give your life to him or you don't. And if you don't know Jesus here today, it's not that he doesn't want you, it's that you are not responding. So they say to him, well, how do, you have a, how do we have a relationship with you? They say this in verse 28 and 29. They say, what must we do to do the works God requires? 
And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And once again, he flies in the face of the credo of every religion in the world. Every religion in the world says to you, there's a set of things you must do and a set of things you must not do, and hopefully if you do enough of those things, you will become become acceptable to the God that you have created in your mind. Every religion in the world has this at its foundational base, except Christianity. Because Jesus' response here, which we always see in Scripture, is there's absolutely nothing you can do. We are saved not by what we do, not by our works. We are saved by his works on our behalf. What he is planning to do and that which he did do. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. It's not, I've done my part, now you need to do some. He says it's finished. And so when you die, and everyone in this room will die, when you die and you stand before God, and you give an account, which everyone in this room does and will do, and you are standing before the judgment seat of Christ, whatever you do, don't pull out your resume. You pull out your resume, God is going to say, you did not make the team. Simply say this, I'm with Jesus. I trusted him. I confessed my sin. I asked for forgiveness, not based on what I've done or didn't do, but solely based on what Jesus did for me. And I received him as Savior and Lord in a life-giving way, in a way that wasn't just about some prayer I'm praying for eternal life, in a way that changes the way I do life every day. And when you sincerely give your life to Christ, and we see this, we could take time out of this passage, when you sincerely give your life to Christ in this way, Jesus says there is security in that relationship. Next section, beginning in verse 41. At this time, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. See, he's saying again, I am God. And this bugs them to no end. There's numerous places in the scriptures where when he makes these claims to be God, they try to kill him. And this is at the heart of why they did end up murdering him. Because he claimed to be God. And so they're upset that he's saying, I'm the bread of life. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he then say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father draws us and we receive. This is the way it always works. The Father draws us and we receive. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one who has seen the, no one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread 
that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. They're upset by that, very upset, offended deeply. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us this flesh to eat? They're thinking, he means this literally. We're going to start ripping chunks off his body and start eating these things. This is what they're thinking. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. So he says, I'm the bread of life, and they grumble. You know, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, God feeds miraculously millions of people as they're wandering in the, in the wilderness. And he sends them bread, manna, every day. Not a bunch of bread, but just enough for the day. They get uptight with God because of this, and they grumble. And now in the new, because they want something else to eat besides bread. And in the New Testament, God sends the bread of life, and they grumble again grumbling because Jesus is claiming to be God. Can I just say something? This is kind of a side comment. Grumbling is not a spiritual gift, contrary to popular opinion. Some people think it is, and it's not. In verses 59, 51 through 59 is one of the more difficult passages in Scripture to understand. And Jesus says it over and over and over and over and over again, five times. Five times he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people read this and they say, he wants me to eat what? What is this, a, a script for a horror film or the zombie apocalypse? What's going on here? And he says it over and over and over again. So how do we explain this? It's not easy. Difficult to understand. And sometimes the underlying reason for why we don't understand something is because we don't like what it says. And we don't want to accept it. And we don't agree with it. And that's why we don't understand. But sometimes it's simply because we don't understand, quite literally. And I wonder how many people here in the room are in a season right now where you don't fully understand what God is doing or saying, but you're saying, I realize I have a decision to make. And that's what this passage is really all about. As we move into the third section in a moment, you're going to see that's what this is all about. I really don't understand, but God still calls for a response. Five times. 
Should we take, so people look at this and they go, should we take this literally, what he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? And then a bigger question, should we take the Bible literally? Many people in our world will say to you, I should never take it literally. Don't take it literally. Of course, that's absolutely wrong. Absolutely, fundamentally wrong. You always the proper way to interpret Scripture is to approach it and say, I'm going to assume this is literal. I approach it literally unless it clearly is not meant to be what I would call literally literal. We always by default approach it and say, I'm going to take this literally, and this is where it's hard to understand, unless it's clearly not literally literal. So there's two kinds of literal I would suggest to you. One is the plain literal, and the other is figurative literal. And when we use a figure of speech, let me just ask this question rhetorically. When we use a figure of speech, are we not yet still communicating a literal truth? We absolutely are. Let me give you some examples of figurative literal speech. Sometimes we'll say something like this, I am so hungry, I could eat a horse. I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. Am I communicating a literal truth there? I am saying literally, I am very hungry. I might even say I am famished, and I would really like something to eat. That's the literal truth I'm communicating. But I don't have a horse, and even if I did have a horse, I probably wouldn't eat it unless I was actually starving to death. So some people in our world eat horse, but that's not very typical in our part of the world. And so we use this as a figure of speech to communicate the literal truth that I am hungry. Do we ever see figurative literal language in the Bible? We do. There's a couple of times, I'll just pick one of them, where God is referred to in a certain way. One time is found in the book of Matthew, the other time is in the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 91, it says in the opening verses of Psalm 91 that God will cover you with his feathers and his wings. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pictured as a mother hen gathering his, her chicks. So let me ask you, the reason it says in Psalm 91 that he'll cover you with his feathers and his wings, that you'll be in a place of refuge. So let me ask you, is God a bird? He's not a bird, is he? We know this is a figure of speech. We know from John chapter 4 that God is actually a spirit. And so it's a figure of speech, it's a word picture, but it helps us to understand a literal truth, that when we are in eternal relationship with God, this is a place of safety, this is a place of protection, this is a place of warmth, this is a place of provision, like a little chick under the mother hen's wings. So question for you. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Plain literal or figurative literal? Well, if we say plain literal, we are cannibals, right? Which is not overly attractive. In the Catholic Church, they teach something on this particular issue that's fundamentally different than what we would teach on this issue. 
They would teach, and they do teach, a doctrine called transubstantiation, which means at communion, or the mass as they call it, that the bread, and they use real wine, that the, the bread and the real wine literally in a miraculous way becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. And so at the mass, Christ is literally being re-sacrificed and re-crucified every time they celebrate the mass. We know from the Bible this is absolutely not true. Hebrews says this is not the case. It says Jesus died once for all. Once for all. And I have Catholic friends, many of whom I appreciate. They're really good people. You need to understand this is one of the places where we teach fundamentally different and, in fact, opposite things. When we take communion together, which we did last Sunday, we remember the broken body of Christ and we remember the shed blood of Christ. And we do this by using some emblems, in a sense. We use a piece of bread, which is representative and reminds us of his broken body. We use some juice so that we can be inclusive for everyone um, in the room uh, that represents the shed blood of Christ. And so it's a time of celebrating what he did in the past, how he's touched our life, and what he's going to do in the future. Let's look at section 3, verse 60. On hearing this, many of disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They're deeply offended by what he said. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet some of you, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray them. He went on to say, him rather, this, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through the one of the twelve was later to betray him. And so Jesus offends them deeply. And at times, he still does. He doesn't do anything wrong in doing that. He simply speaks the truth. And increasingly, and we're all aware of this, increasingly in our world, the truth is seen as an offensive thing. Now, sometimes it's shared in an abusive way. I'm not talking about that kind of sharing of truth in a hurtful way. I'm talking about even when the truth is lived out and spoken in a loving way. That is seen as something to be marginalized, something to hate, something to vilify on social media. We see this more and more and more in our world. And so he speaks the truth. And many of the people leave. Most, the vast bulk of them leave. They say, I love the free bread. 
But if you're going to talk about this kind of stuff, if you're going to talk about really getting into my inner life and transforming my life, I am out. And then he asks the disciples, are you going to leave too? Thousands of people are leaving me. It's a very curious approach to church growth. And he asks the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Have I offended you? Do you still trust me? Or are you going to go? And by the way, one of you is a devil. And Peter, the leader, speaks up. How many of you have had a day like this with Jesus? I don't understand. The stuff he's saying is really tough stuff. He's offended me. And I realize I have a decision to make. Like I said, yesterday was a day like that for me. Not about this stuff, but some other stuff. So a couple of things about the Bible, and then a couple of things about us. Sometimes the Word of God is really hard to understand. In fact, of the 27 books of the New Testament, Peter, uh, the spokesman here, Um, He writes two of those 27 books, and at one point in those two books, he says, some of the scriptures, particularly the stuff that that Apostle Paul guy is writing, that's really tough stuff to understand. Sometimes the scriptures are really hard to understand. So what do we do when we don't understand? Well, let me encourage you along a few paths. Study it carefully. The Bible A child can appreciate it, and yet at the same time, by far, it is the most profound book in the history of the world. You could study it your entire life and barely scratch the surface. Study it carefully. Study it um, in context and in its historical setting and all of those things. Pray and ask God, Lord, it says three times in Psalm 119, give me understanding. It says in another place, give me discernment. And it says in another place, make it very applicable to my heart. So three times it says, pray and ask for understanding and discernment. Ask God to help you understand. And then most importantly as well, keep walking with Jesus. And if you do those things, eventually you will get an answer. It may not be until heaven, but eventually. In fact, it says that in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, you know, right now we look at this stuff and sometimes it's a little bit like looking through a glazed glass. It's a little bit fuzzy for us. But that day when we're in heaven with Christ, we will see him clearly. We will see him face to face. And all of those things that we still have questions about will be answered. At times, the Word of God is really hard to understand. That's one of the reasons that God is God. Secondly, the Word of God, it can be offensive. And uh, the reason it's offensive to us is because it's true. And sometimes we don't like to hear the truth, especially when it's really personal, especially when it really scratches where we need And so some people, in fact, I just read somebody, you know, about stuff like this just this past week. You know, we need to change the Word of God. It's this ancient text. It needs to change, and it needs to get more hip, and it needs to get more in in line with society. And God, God just 
I don't know what he does. I don't know if he shakes his head even though he doesn't have a head or smile even though he doesn't smile that way. But he says, no. You need to change. In fact, you need to change so desperately. This is at the heart of why I sent Christ. This is at the heart of why I gave you the precious gift of my word. And our job is to not try and edit God's word. Our job is to humble ourselves and obey. It's very interesting to me that they're very offended. And he knows that, you know, who knows how many, 10 or 15,000 of them are going to walk after they hear this message. What does Jesus do? He says it over and over and over and over and over again. And he does not change what he's saying. Whereas a lot of leaders nowadays, when they say something and they see their numbers start to decline, the marketing firm steps in and says, hey, we've been charting you. You're not trending well. You need to change your messaging. Not Jesus. He doesn't change one word of it. Instead, he says it over and over and over again. The Word of God cannot be understood apart from the Holy Spirit revealing it to us. It says this, we're going to see this in a few weeks' time, in John chapter 14 through 16. It says the Holy Spirit comes as we look at His Word and it illumines us. He, it, it, it's like he turns the light on so we can understand. And many of us don't like to think of something outside of us having to help us. And so there's nothing wrong with having a high IQ. There's nothing wrong with going to school. Uh, I've done a lot of schooling in my day, and I'll be doing more of it. It's a good thing to do. But the key to understanding is not just my intellect. It's not just my, uh, the stuff I've been uh, exposed to educationally. It's also my heart and my humility. In this whole passage, Jesus is talking about the internal. I want an internal, soul-changing relationship with you. And there's three responses to his call and his ask in this passage. The first one is, no way, not a chance I'm going to do this, Jesus. And these are the people that do not want a relationship with Christ. And so externally and overtly, they walk. As soon as Christianity is not so popular, as soon as it starts to actually speak the hardcore truth, as soon as it's talking about actually changing our life, they are out and they walk in mass. Is that you? Because that's, that's a response that many people, that most people take, sadly. Overtly walking away. I just want to tell you, if that's been the case or you're thinking about that, Jesus has not given up on you. He's still trying to draw you. Don't believe the lie of the evil one that it's too late. He's still trying to draw you. Secondly, there's the Judas response. Judas is not overt. Judas is covert. Outwardly, he looks like he's got it going on. Outwardly, it looks like he's walking the talk. He's 
in relationship in terms of being in proximity to Jesus. He's serving. He's the treasurer of the group. They don't have many funds, but the funds they have, he administers. He seems like he's paying attention when Jesus is talking. He eats with Jesus. He's doing life with Jesus. From all outward appearances, he looks like he's a member of Jesus' team. But Jesus identifies him as a devil. He's a covert liar. And he's dishonest. And internally, he is not there with Jesus. And I wonder how many are like that here. Externally, you look like you're part of the team. You're all pressed and prim and proper. But internally, you've never allowed Jesus to change you. You might go to church... You might say all the right things. You might give whatever the case may be. But you've never let Jesus change you. You know, the thing that just, this is one of the things that's so profound about Christianity that just blows me away, is this is is taking place two years before Jesus is falsely arrested and murdered. It's two Passovers before, and it's his first Passover with the disciples. There's two more Passovers to come. Jesus prophetically says, one of you is going to betray me. He knows who it is. He knows it's Judas. It says in the text, he knows who's going to do this. He knows what Judas is going to do, but he still loves him and gives him chance after chance for another couple of years. In fact, two years into the future, at the Last Supper, I could take you to that text and show you how as they're sitting around the U-shaped table, Jesus puts Judas, if you study the text carefully, in the position of trust, the person who guards your back. That's where Judas was sitting at the Last Supper. And trust me, Jesus is saying to him, one more time, It's not too late. This is mind-boggling stuff. There isn't a person in this room that would know this guy is going to stab me in the back and send me to the cross two years from now. I'm going to keep him on the team. He's stealing from the the, the kitty. I'm going to keep him on the team. There isn't a person like that in this room. This is how gracious and loving and patient our God is. So let me just say, if you don't want a relationship with Jesus, it's not because there's something wrong with Jesus, it's because there's something wrong in your heart. But like Judas, it's not too late. It's not too late for you. Don't believe the lie of the evil one that it is. The third response is that of Peter. Jesus says, are you guys all going to walk on me too? Uh, And so he says to Peter, will you walk with me? And Peter says, we have believed in you. We trust you. We will walk with you. You are the Holy One of God. He says this on a difficult day with Jesus. One of those days that's a hard day, and there's a few of those for Peter, and there's a few of those for us. Days where, like for Peter, there's questions that you'll never get an answer to this side of, of, of eternity. 
It, there's going to be days where you're going to be offended deeply once in a while. But like Peter, a true disciple, a biblical believer, despite the hard days, despite the difficult questions, despite the offensiveness of it all, Peter says, I will walk with you. I will trust you. We declare, Jesus, that you are the Holy One of God. And so I'm going to invite everybody in here to bow their head and close their eyes. And I'm going to do that too in just a moment. But right now, go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're here today and you are a biblical believer, you are a follower of Jesus, and you are like Peter, I'm going to invite you to affirm like Peter did these truths. Jesus, even though at times it's really tough with you, and I've had some tough days, even though there's some things you say I don't understand, even though there's some things that are very offensive to me because they're true and they hit me right where I need to be hit, I still affirm that I'm going to walk with you, and I affirm that you are the Holy One of God. And if that is your commandment, commitment once again today and you are still on that path, I just invite you to raise your hand before God to indicate that. And my eyes are closed. It's just God looking. You can go ahead and put your hand down. This is a good thing to do. Despite not understanding. Despite having a tough day. Despite being offended. I am with you, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. Would you just raise your hand and just indicate to God, this is your place? And actually, I don't even have my eyes open now, but just between you and God, make that declaration. You can put your hand down. This pleases God when even though it's tough, we say, yes, you're the Holy One of God, and I'm with you. Amen. May we be people that wherever we are, we are all there. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.